What I have to share more tonight is geared towards young people. Um, you two Martin boys and Morgan have heard me speak many times and you have probably will recognize some of this. But I hope you can listen again. I told y'all before that I grew up until I was 16 in Rockingham County, Virginia, on the farm that Samuel Gehring now has. And behind the barn, it's still there. There was a knoll in the field and us boys would go back there in the spring when dad would work up that land and look for shards of pottery, nice pretty pieces of pottery because that is where Potter John Heatwell had his pottery shop in pre-Civil, up until the Civil War when it was probably destroyed. And so most of the pretty pieces are in somebody's home and what was left after the war and after many years of growing corn on top of it. They weren't very big, but they was pretty pieces. And one of my cousins recently went to an estate sale and tried to buy a crock that uh, he said it was big enough to put jelly in to set on your table. And it had Potter John Heatwell written in the bottom of it and he wanted to buy it. And it, it brought $950. We never found any of those. But the Bible has a lot of verses to say about pottery and potters. And I could give you a whole, it starts in Job. And he says, though you know that I'm not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand, your hand shaped me and made me and will you turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay and now turn me to dust again. And he says, you know, I was a pretty cup, a nice bowl, and now I'm nothing but dust. And that's how Job felt. And I could give you a lot more, but I want to read one from Romans chapter 9. And it's uh, verse 20 and 21, and he says this, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. And, you know, most of us have that part in us that we want to make ourselves. We want to be self-made men, self-made women. And you'd learn that early on, especially if you go to public school. I'll get to that part later. And we're troubled. We don't like the way God made us. Most teenagers go through that period of their life. If only he would have made me with this or that or you name it. We tend to be discontent with our physical features. Some period in our life. But as you develop into these next years and into uh, adulthood and your early married life, God is still shaping and molding your inner man and woman to make a vessel of significant use. I want to tell you that God owes you nothing. 
And yet his interest and concern is for your good and continued growth and spiritual maturity. And it is not always easy to be surrendered to the will of God. But rest assured, that is the only place to be, to remain pliable and soft and workable as he works in our lives. I have a display of cups here, and I want to just make a brief lesson about them. Um, if you go to most people's homes, there's a, a varied variety of mugs and cups, and they don't use most of them. I was rooting around in Mildred's cupboard the other I found her mug cupboard, and uh, it's just her and Nathan. I bet most of them never get used anymore, and um, that's the way life is. All of the mugs, all the finest pottery, comes from the same clay. You know, the writer said, you know, I don't really like the way God made me. And we want to be something useful and something pretty. But, you know, from the same clay that they make china or that they may make a mug, they also make the uh, fixtures in your restroom. They're pretty important. But none, none of us want to be that part. <laughs> it's all made out of the same clay. But you will come to places in your life where maybe God asks you to be one of the bathroom fixtures. I don't have time to tell you all my stories. China and ceramic things are all made from the same clay that they dig out of the ground in Aiken County, South Carolina. There's huge kaolin pits there. It's a white chalky clay. It's also found in Florida. They use it for toothpaste, for uh, pharmaceuticals, to bind uh, aspirin tablets together, to make china, to make all kinds of porcelain things, to make face powder. We use it as a lubricant in animal feed so it slides down gravity bends. And my boys use it to make shrimp bait. So it's all very useful. But do we really have a choice when God puts that lump of clay on the wheel and starts spinning it? Say, God, please don't make a hopper out of me. I want to be a beautiful cup. Well, I didn't tell Mildred this, but I'm a tea drinker. I will drink coffee. I'm a social drinker. I won't turn it down, but it doesn't stir my heart. And um, I guess that I learned that from my father. But then the years that I lived in Canada, I found out that their tea was really good. They have really good cuts of tea. You see, the British get the best cuts, the Canadians next, and the American gets what's swept off the floor. And so I, I've really learned to like tea. And, 1984, when we returned home from northern Ontario, my dad at that point wasn't very old. He, he was younger than me. I can't believe that. But he was active in the farm, and somebody had, the Pioneer Seed Man, had given him a set of two mugs in a carfay. And he kept the carfay for himself, and I guess he thought the mugs were a little tacky for someone of his age and maturity, and 
He asked me if I wanted, I said, sure, I'll take them. And so I drank my morning tea in this cup for many years, probably 25, 30 years. And I did my calculations. I drank over 900 gallons of tea out of this cup. And you know, it, it looks bad inside. It's all stained and the glaze is cracked. There's a chip here and there's a blemish there. But it was faithful. It was the faithful cup. And um, one day I thought, you know, it's time to replace that bad boy. And Grace and I went to the Henry Ford Museum. I told you all about that. Well, you cannot get it. You got to know the man who knew Henry Ford to get in. But you can't get out of there without going through the gift shop. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Now, in heaven, there's no gift shop because you don't have to leave. But So we had to exit through the gift shop, and when we was walking through that place, I found it. The cup that I would drink my morning tea in. And, you know, I thought, this is just right. You know, it's conservative and black. You know, make a black minister's, a good minister's cup. It used to say Henry Ford on it, but the dishwasher took that off but it had a proper handle and it held a nice amount of tea. And I used it for a week or two and it wasn't good. You see, I like tea, black teas that brew red in the cup. And when you look at that thing, boy, you can't tell what color it is. It's black in there. And it didn't taste right either because the tea bags I get from Canada make a really good stout cup of tea, but this thing is too big. It watered it down. I guess I could only fill it up part way, but how much fun is that? And so after a while, I just said, you know, and it went back on the shelf, and I pulled this one down. And I used it for another many years. I, I, did, I should have brought my real... I got a cup at home now that I drink my tea in. It's got a, a cotton bowl on it. It's beautiful. And I should have brought it. I don't know why I didn't. But anyway, I, that's my go-to cup. I'm probably about up to 900 gallons in that one. I was at a place preaching one time and was telling the same story I'm telling you. A couple of days later, I got a package in the mail. And I got the mate to this one. The one I had broke. But he sent me one that's extra virgin. It don't have a crack or a blemish on it. Evidently, it was just sitting in his cupboard, you know. And so he got it down and sent it to me. Now, if you come to my house for tea, Grace will not give you this cup. It, it's nasty looking inside. And I won't let her give you that one because you can't tell what it looks like. And if it don't look good, it don't taste good. She will give you a beautiful cup. And she's got a few of these. And they're pretty. Look how pretty. It's got violets on it. All of us want to be is a pretty cup. But let me tell you, that handle is worthless. <laughs> you can't get, a man can't get his fingers in it. You gotta kinda pinch the thing and look, look, Femi-like, you know. And it holds about two swallows. But it's pretty. It's pretty. So young fellas, young ladies, which cup do you wanna be? I know you're Morgan's sister. You can't hide that. <clears throat> Which cup do you want to be? Do you want to be 
you know, the macho cup, you know, the big the, the baboon tires on your pickup truck. And, and um, or do you want to be the pretty one? Or would you want to be the useful cup that's all dinged and scratched? You don't have to tell me right now. But how about you guys? All of these cups represent us in some way. And young people struggle with a lot of things. And I did. I mean, I was your all's age. I'm going to confess to you right now, I was no box of chocolates. I'm ashamed. I, I wanted to be this cup, and I was always little and skinny. Can't get my shirt collar buttoned anymore, but oh well, you know. <laughs> and so I often, I'm not going to do it tonight, but I often ask the young people to, to bow your heads and shut your eyes. And how many of you all want to be the macho cup? You know, strut around, be recognized. And almost all the guys were honest. No, nobody's looking, you know. They raised their hand. They want to be this cup. And all the ladies will lift their hand. Yep, they want to be pretty. And ladies are pretty. That's okay, but don't let it go to your head. And there's a few people that are real devout. You know, you'll get a hand or two that say they want to be the useful cup. But I want to plead with you tonight. Allow God to make out of you, out of that piece of soft, malleable, workable piece of clay, the cup or vessel that he wants you to be. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. I'm going to tell you that I'm not anything at 65 that I thought that I would be at 15. I'm doing none of it. I'm not doing anything at 65 that I thought I'd be doing at 25. Except that I was, I did get married and we're, we're sticking it out. But that's about all. I don't regret that one, but. And so, listen to me as we go from here. I was a school board chairman one time, and that, that's kind of a grievous job, thankless task, you know that. And it was my responsibility to be looking for new school board teachers. The goods had left, and, and they ended up, I, that's how I got the Corver family. Well, he, he agreed to come work for us, but anyway, and it was a good thing. We loved Corvers. But this was pre-cell phone era, and I probably called 20 people, and they just hoot at you on the phone. Nah, we don't want to come to your school. We don't want to come down there where it's gnats and mosquitoes. And They wouldn't say that, but I think that's what they were thinking. But I, I knew this one boy that lived up in the motherland, you know, where everything's better, and and I called up there, and he didn't answer the phone. Back before cell phones, and his daddy answered the phone. And he said, well, he, the boy wasn't home. And he said, well, could I talk? Maybe I'll just ask you. And I says, I understand your son has, has got his degree from a great school of mines there in Harrisonburg, and, and he wants to be a teacher. Would he, he consider a, a new place where they eat cornbread and black-eyed peas and okra and, and expand his horizons a little bit? He said, no. He's still collecting his tools. Well, I thought he was kind of sawed off. and He didn't even let me talk to the boy. I probably could have talked him into it. But 
That's the way it was. And so, young people, a lot of you are still in your tool collecting stage of life. Maybe you're still in high school, maybe you're off to a tech college or university or VS, you got all kinds of things, good things. You're collecting the tools you need to be all that God wants you to be. And you should specialize this time of your life to prepare for the ministry and calling that God has for you. A doctor will be collecting different tools than a mechanic, and a mechanic will have some overlap with farmers, but farmers have their tools. And a lot of them are green and have yellow wheels, you know. And so we have different vocations have different tools, and you, your youth and early 20 years are a time when we are tool collectors. Some few years ago, when Dodge trucks came out with these Cummins diesels, and it was real fashionable in, in some communities to have one of these things. And there was a man in our community, his name is Butch McGee. Now, Butch McGee owned the Ford tractor dealership, which became the New Holland dealership. And he would call on all the farmers in our area. And he was loyal to his brand. He always drove a white Ford work truck. And here he come in one morning, and I could hear that thing rattling. It sounded like the lagoon pump. And old uh, Dodge come in the lane. And I said, Bo, what in the world? You not driving a Ford truck this morning? And he said, nah. He said, I wanted to try one of these things. I said, I just got it last week, but I'm not happy. He said, me and my wife, we went up to Walhalla in the mountains. It's four hours up to there from where we live. The one up, by, up beyond Abbeville and Pickens. And they've got some mountains up there. They're not real big. But and he said, I went up there to look at the leaves in my new truck. And we got up there, and that thing stuck in second gear. And it took us eight hours to come home. We just could go about 30 miles an hour, and I wasn't happy. So when I got back on Monday morning, I took my truck to the Dodge dealership. And, and so I, they wouldn't let me in the shop as I went over in the waiting room where you could look in and, and look and see why the mechanics. And he says, they finally pulled my truck in and put it on the rack. And he said, did his hippie come? And um, he looked at my truck a little bit and he said he didn't look like he had sense enough to come in out of the rain. And he looked at my truck a little bit and he went over into a closet and got a suitcase. And then he come out with that suitcase and he plugged it in a wire into a little place and opened his suitcase. And then he went into another closet and got a little box and came out and took something off and plugged something in and put his suitcase away and said, oh, your truck is okay. And so as he was going out, he met the dealer and he says, you know, you don't gotta be over bright to work on trucks this day and age, he said, no, but you got to have the suitcase. And so that's the way it is in life. You need to prepare for the things that God has for you. Tools do matter. Get a proper education. I can't in emphasize that enough. I talked to you one night about learning to read your Bible. It's hard to do that if you haven't applied yourself and learned to read. And um, how many of you men, probably most of you, have had a 
commencement address, a graduation speech. Probably a lot of you. It's overrated, I'm telling you. It's, it's overrated. I just have to tell those people bad news. I don't like giving commencement addresses. Because see, all these other guys tell them, you know, that your future is bright. And you can be anything you want to be. You can shoot for the moon. You can jump over the moon. That's not true. You can't be anything you want to be. Young lady, will you ever be the queen of England? You can't be. And you can't be the king of England. It's, you're not in that bloodlines. And this thing of telling young people they can be anything they want to be is just not true. Teach young people to be realistic, to have goals that are for the honor and glory of God that grow the church and not promote themselves. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. I read these verses one night. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I'm giving you today for your own good, not for your harm. That was good advice 3,000 years ago, and I think it's still good advice today. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded of how much there is yet to learn. Carl, you've been to university. Why not? Because your dad is teaching you more than what they would teach you, right? That's how it works sometimes. <clears throat> but I, I'm glad Mr. Mark went to university. Would you like to go uh, to the hospital with a bunch of garage door hangers? <laughs> hmm? No? Nah, tell me. Aren't you glad he went to university? Okay, I am too. I'm glad somebody knows how to do those kind of things. When I was younger, many, many years ago, I was given a month off of my job in northwestern Ontario during freeze-up to come home and get my pilot's license. I wanted to get certified to fly. And at the end of that month, and thank God it was a dry, clear blue sky fall. And we had um, to get 40 hours. I, I, I don't know how many hours you have to get anymore to get your ticket. But I had an old World War II pilot, a, a crop duster, who knew that I was making $25 a month. And he was on my side. And, and so what we would do, we would land and he'd shut the engine off so it wouldn't be running up time as we glided in and turned down the taxiways. He, he was really looking out for me. But finally, I had 39 hours, and he says, what you do is I'm going to sign your logbook, and you spend an hour flying from here to Augusta, Georgia. That way, when you land, you'll have your 40 hours, and you just taxi up to the FAA administration building there, and you go in this certain door, and a man will come out and talk to you, and, and he'll, he'll get you your ticket. So that's what I did. And so I 
went to Augusta and I circled around until I had enough time, maybe a half of a millimeter over, you know, and landed and taxied up, got out, went into the place. And I met this man there that was going to give me my exam. And he was a big, tall man like the Martins. And he had uh, scrambled eggs on his bill cap. And he had scrambled eggs on his shoulders and medals and things on his coat. And he intimidated me from the first beginning. I don't know why he had all that stuff, but it was impressive. And so we sat down and we do the oral exam first. And so he started asking me about all kinds of airspace. And the first question, I didn't know. And the second question, I didn't know. And when he got to the third question, I didn't know that one either. And I mean, my heart was going, and I was stressing out. And so he leaned over and kind of wiped his brow and opened the desk drawer and pulled out some aviation maps. You know, it's got all those colored circles on it. And everybody goes by GPS and that kind of stuff. Now, back in the day, you had to have maps. And so he got to talking to me about military airspace and controlled airspace and outer space and all these places where you're not supposed to go. I didn't do so good with those questions either. And I, I just figured I bombed it right there. You see, I had bought an airplane ticket to fly back to Red Lake, Ontario the next day. There was no second chances. I needed to be back on the job. And if I bombed this test, I just bombed it. I, I wouldn't go get my ticket. I couldn't do it over. And so he put the map back in the drawer and kind of shut. He says, let's go fly. And I thought to myself, why in the world is this man going to go fly with me if I failed my oral test? Unless he just wanted to tantalize me some more. So we went out to the pre-flight and we flew. And, and I tried to concentrate on what I was doing. And I, I come in for approach. And I remember just being able to just degrees it on and taxi up there. I hoped I impressed him. And he says, okay, tie it down, and you put your chalks in and tie it down and, and come on inside. And so I went inside. I figured he was just going to hand me some papers with red ink all over it. And he came in, he shook me, and he says, congratulations, you did a really good job. Then he says, sit down a little bit, I want to talk to you. He said, I asked you those questions that you didn't know so that you would realize how much there is left for you to learn. If I would have let you come in here and ask you easy questions, you would have thought you was pretty smart and you would have been dangerous. You would have went out there and got killed. But you needed to learn that you have a whole lot yet to learn. And the sooner you young people realize that you don't have it all figured out yet, that mom and dad are not as as you might think they are, you'll go longer and further in life. It's just the way it is. I'm just telling it to you straight. This is not in my notes, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Uh, I'm going to pick on the men just a little bit. Not, I'll get the women some other day. Do you know that there's three periods of arrogance in most men's life? When a boy is about 16... What he don't know wouldn't make a very big book. I mean, he's pretty clever. 
And then when that young man's in his 30s, and he's got a whole row of little young'uns on the bench there, and he can tap them on the head and they behave themselves, and or he can take them home at night and paddle them if they've been bad in church or school, and and they can go to bed and it's taken. And he looks across the church pew at some man that's got teenagers, and he says, I wonder why he don't make those boys listen, you know. And he's arrogant. And he looks down on his brother who's got teenagers that maybe ought to make some better choices. And then maybe when that man is in his uh, mid-40s or early 50s, and he's got some of the rough things behind him, uh, he's got a lot of his bills paid off and life is good. And he can look across the pew and look down on his poor brother and say, you know, if he was clever like me, he'd be rich too. And he's arrogant. I've, that's something that I've observed. And so humility is huge in all of us at all stages of life. The sooner we learn humility, the more effective that we can all be and be that piece of pottery that God can use. 1 Timothy 4, we are exhorted to live our lives in such a way that we are a godly example of youth and that we should live without remorse or regret. All of us are going to live with a certain sense of remorse, but learn to live without great remorse. If you live a life perfectly, um, that's not in the cards. But if you choose to make good choices with uh, the help of your authorities, your parents, your church leaders, you will be spared a life of huge remorse. I'm going to start passing a picture around here. Uh, I would put it on the screen, but I'm not. And you can just pass it around the church. And when it gets back to you, you can just lay it there, okay? I'm, I'm going to tell you about this guy. When I was in the fourth grade, I broke my elbow. It was a, it was a very serious break, and the um, doctors didn't know how to fix it. And so here I was laying in uh, Rockingham Memorial Hospital, and, and they told me that they didn't know if they had it right or not, that they were sending x-rays to the University Hospital in Charlottesville, and they may have to re-break it and reset it. And I thought, they shouldn't have told me that, because that hurt. And so there I lay in the bed, you know, for two or three days and fixing to break my arm again, you know, just... And that's what I thought. But one day they got word back from the University of Virginia. Evidently it was mail instead of email or text or telephone call that they thought it was as good as they can do. And so this arm is a bit crippled. And I crushed it later on, and it's really crippled. But, you know, growing up in school and every Monday morning, the teachers would pick up new teams playing softball. And so they would pick up, they'd let two guys pick up and they'd pick up the good boys. And then they'd pick up the, they'd pick up the really good boys and the better boys. And then they'd pick up the old order girls. And then they'd pick up the rest of the girls and then they'd pick me. And you see, I went from... Uh, 
being a pretty good ball player to where my bat would never go where my eyes looked because I had a crippled arm. And I went, <clears throat> instead of an, a high RBI average, I had a huge strikeout average. And so I had this humiliation every Monday morning as picking up teams. And so teachers, save, save your, your children. I mean, just bring two guys in the, cl in the uh, classroom and let them pick up the teams, and then you go out and announce who's on each class. That way you ain't got to stand out there like Mr. McCartney. I was Mr. McCartney. You know, those old Ordermen and I girls were good. They were born and raised to play ball. But anyway, I never impressed the big league scouts. They didn't come looking for me. And, you know, it bothered me back in the day. A few years ago, our church is divided up in small groups where we can do things together, you know, visiting homes or Bible study. But one time, a small group invited the small group that Grace and I were in to go to the school gym to play volleyball. And that was really a downer to me. The snacks are good, the hors d'oeuvres are good, but the volleyball, I'm beyond that. I don't need to play volleyball, you know, with one arm. And here, but I played, you know, just, you know, to be a good witness, you know. And there was a little lady who's just a little younger than me, a little short lady who has eight children, was on the other side of the net, and she tore me up. Man, she was spiking that ball, and she was good. But you know, it didn't bother me. I was in my 60s. I could care less if she could spike a ball. There's a lot of things I could do she couldn't do. It didn't bother me, but it hurts at 16 or, or 12 when some girl can drill a volleyball into your face, don't it? Okay? So, learn to be content with the way God made you. He made you that way for a purpose. And um, God does have a plan for your life. And you may say, well, if God has a plan for my life, why in the world is it taking him so long? And, um, but are you willing, are you willing to allow God to totally put your plans and dreams in the big dumpster of things that he hasn't chosen for you? For the last 37 years, I have worked with cattle, a.k.a. milking cows, trying to extract milk from large hairy mammals by attaching suction things to their private parts. I'm surprised that more people aren't getting killed, but that's what we do. Cheerios aren't good without milk. Cheese is wonderful and a whole lot of other things. I never dreamed that that's what I do. You see, for many years, I wanted to fly. I flew. I flew at the mission. I wanted to be a bush pilot, and I have pictures of planes. Do you remember I showed you all pictures of planes? Nice otters and beavers and float planes. And then one day, I felt God telling me that he wanted me to do something else.
but I never dreamed it was milking cows. But I did decide that where Grace went to bed was where I was going to go to bed. I wasn't going to sleep in some old kicked out flea-bitten cabin or some teepee up north, and Grace was somewhere else because I got weathered in. And so a lot of these aviation jobs is glorified taxi drivers or truck driving. That's all it is on, on floats or skis or wheels, whatever your choice. And so here I am at 65, and I've milked a million cows. My boys and Grace still do it. I still work with them. But it's not what I chose. There's nothing glamorous, really, about getting up at 4 in the morning most people think because not many people want to do it anymore. You know, I hear, and I hear Nathan and Mildred get up and go do their job and I ask him today if he enjoys it. And he said he does. I enjoy my work. But it's hard to find people that want to do it with you. And looking back, the life that Grace and I live now is not the life that I would have chosen. I didn't choose to be in church leadership, we submitted to it. I didn't really have in my plans, I wanted to live in the bush, I wanted to live up north, Alaska. We went to Churchill, Manitoba and scoped that place out. Up there was polar bears, it was wonderful. But I spent a lot of time milking cows and, and church work. And looking back, I feel a great sense of contentment and joy for the path he chose to lead us on. If you'd have told me 25 years ago or whenever it was, when Grace and I said our vows on bended knee to be the deacon, that I would be away from home many times a year in revival meetings, and that wasn't what I signed up for, but it's where I'm at now, and I'm content. She's not always. But she's here. <laughs> Can I read you a poem? We went to public school and we learned a poem that maybe you all learned too. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth and then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that passing there, it had warned them about really the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, and yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I'd ever be back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all of the difference. Young people, learn to desire God's plan for your life. And I'm not going to tell you it's going to always be easy to figure out what it is. Some of you all, Joyce and Jamses and Grace and I, know the crushing disappointment of having a loved one snatched out in an instant. 
then you say, how can that be God's will? We don't see the whole picture at one time. If David the shepherd boy was normal, he probably dreamed of a day when he would own his own flocks and herds, just like these Martin boys that go eat their daddy up. Uh, that's where I'm at now, you know, my boys, they, you know, you know, you're, you're old fashioned, you know. We're doing it, we're doing some serious farming now, you know. But they're pretty good boys. Perhaps he wanted to take on the leadership of his father's business, make it grow and plant some, you know, some more grapes over here and add irrigation to that field and get a new breed of rams to improve the production of his sheep flock. But when God called David to be the king, he resigned his own plans for God's plans. And he must have told Jesse what had happened. You know, Jesse was counting on this boy to grow up to be the, the shepherd, the man in charge of the sheep. But he goes in and says, you know, King Saul called and he wants me to come over there and play harp for him. And Jesse said, oh, go ahead. And so maybe you've come to some place in your life where in your heart you've said no to God in some area. Maybe it's a habit that you enjoy that you know is wrong. Or a habit that you have that is not God-honoring. Or a relationship that you have with someone that you know is wrong. Maybe a call to do something with your life that is not what you wanted to do. I've been there many times. In 1976, I had the opportunity to go work for six months with a custom harvester in the western states. We went from uh, Arizona, California, the Montana border, and back to Texas and got paid to do it. And it was a carrot and stick sort of arrangement. And we're talking 1976, that's uh, 49 years ago. Not quite, 40, 47 or so. Anyway, at the end of the day, if you stay, you know, that's hard work. It's grueling work. And he said, we, you won't be working Sundays, but we worked to, to 11.59 on Saturday night. And we, we'd put in long days, but I enjoyed it. I got paid to see the West. I saw the real West, the fields, the farms, not the cities. And at the end of the day, I was making $100 a day. And so I looked up what $100 were worth in 1976, and that's $457 a day. And so maybe that's South Boston wages. But it ain't what we make down where we come from, people poor. That winter, I was eating lunch. We'd come in from, for lunch. Me and my dad and mom had cooked dinner, and I was sitting there, and the crew boss, the owner of the business called, and he wanted to know if I would come back and be his crew boss, his manager. And I was just sure this was God's provision for me. I just can't, you know... If I, to get paid that kind of money and to see the West and to, to be a manager. I was sure this was God's provision for me. When I hung up the phone, I looked at my dad and his countenance had fell. I mean, his cheeks had slid down off his face. And he, I could tell it hit him pretty cold. And He saw the dangers, the potential harm to my spiritual life 
in my quest for adventure and money? And he said, no. Now, I was 21, 22, I don't know. I could have gone my way and done what I wanted, I guess. But I was taught to obey my parents. And I knew, even though it was not at all what I wanted to hear, he meant it for my good and that he wasn't trying to be a killjoy. My call to service came through my dad. I lost a lot of potential income, and when I was buying my first farm, my peers were buying their second. I had to get over that too. So I want to tell you, young people, God really does have a plan for your life. It won't be the same as mine. It won't be the same as your siblings, your brothers and sisters. At one time, all of my siblings were scattered. We all lived in other communities. And now, for better or for worse, we all live there in the Bamberg County. You're familiar with this verse. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And it speaks of the thing, if God cares about me, can I trust him? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It has nothing to do with finances. It's all about being that piece of pottery that God can use for his service. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists many things that he accomplished as a young man. He won a lot of awards. He checked off the box on a lot of personal goals. He was high up in the religious ranks of his synagogue. He strict observance. And yet he says, I'll give all of this stuff up. I just consider him trashed just for the cause of Christ. And so all of his earthly accomplishments meant nothing to him compared to the calling of God in his life. And so your life, live your life in a way that makes a difference for someone or many. In God's kingdom, success is not measured by the same standards of those who have worldly values. Christ admonishes us, admonishes us to beware of riches, the deceitfulness of riches. But somehow as I get from Anabaptist community to Anabaptist community, it seems that I observe by our actions and our lifestyles that we as an Anabaptist people don't take that Christ challenge and admonition on wealth very seriously. One of the words that Christ often uses in his teachings and in the Sermon on the Mount, and I had this at school devotions, is compassion. But when he saw the multitudes, Matthew 9, 36, he was moved with compassion for them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as a sheep with no shepherd. And then Jesus gives a lot of examples through his, um, and we have the story of the Good Samaritan and it says, when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And his compassion compelled him to take action, to do something about it, to alleviate that man's suffering, to give him meds, care, and food. And so something is wrong when acquiring wealth and material assets 
scoreboards and athletic achievements, the biggest buck, the pimped out vehicles, vast wardrobes, or unbalanced desire for pleasure and the need to be entertained. Is that what stirs our heart? Then we need to evaluate if we really have a heart toward God. Do you care enough to make a difference? Do you care about the hungry in many parts of the world to give, to share, to serve? Do you care about the tribes unreached with the gospel who have no word from God and his salvation plan in their language? Do you care about the many children born in broken, dysfunctional homes in our messed up, broken society? Do you care enough to surrender your time, your resources, your future to make a difference for God's kingdom? Could you give some time in VS teaching or missions? How do we see the people that God brings into our life? A burden? A distraction? Or someone that you and I can teach and show the love and compassion of Christ. And so I ask, what do you and I want to be remembered for? There was a time when I wanted to be remembered as a bush pilot, but I had to lay that thing down. Too often, we are known for our nice farms, our trade skills, our storage barns made by the Mennonites, or our pies and other food items. No strike at you, but you know what I mean. Do we love our culture more than we love the kingdom of God? And I haven't been to Pennsylvania very often. and I, You're going to think I'm lobbing a brick at them, but I, I've had meetings there a few times. I have seldom been to Pennsylvania, but I've been asked over and over again if I've ever eaten at Shady Maple. Like some major water hole there. Or... If you go to Sarasota, you know, have you been to Yoder's or Troyer's or Dirt Dutchman from up in Plain City, Ohio? Is that our calling as an Anabaptist people to be known for what we do? D.L. Moody says this, It is clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good and valid points. Frankly, Sometimes I don't like the way I do evangelism. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And that speaks to me. We can be so critical and lob bricks through other people's and other churches' windows. But we need to sweep at our own doorstep and take care of the things that God calls us to do. Grace and I have three living sons, and only fairly recently the youngest two came home, returned from finishing their terms in Nicaragua with Olive Branch Missions, and yes, I, I felt to get a bit guilty having them come back, but the girlfriends were calling, and I couldn't blame them. I met a girl in Canada that stole my heart one time. So after much prayer and counsel from others, we decided to build a new dairy facility to accommodate the needs of several growing families and transition to the next generation. And now, 
In the time since completing that project, I'm often, asked, I'm often asked by many or referred to as the man who built a new dairy barn. And I've become a bit weary of it. Could I not be known as Noah of old that Carl was a righteous man, blameless among the people of this time, and he walked with God? Built a dairy barn? Seriously? That's not very important. I have a dream that one day the young people of our churches will be known by their commitment to missions and sacrificial service to others instead of sporting events, tournaments, and the price and quantity of their toys learned from an example lived and shown to them by their mothers and fathers. There was a time when most young men that were physically able gave several years of their time in missions and service to humanity in lieu of military service. And while the mandatory draft has not been active for over 45 years, it should not dampen our commitment to do service to others, missions, and the ongoing work of the church. And so, young people, what did the proverb I taught you yesterday say? Young man, do you remember? Stand up and say it. We should be less afraid of failure and being good at things in life that don't really matter. Very good. You're not quite every word right, but you did, you got the meaning. You re really did good. I'm going to close. I'm, I'm going way too late. I'm going to read you a story yet. This is a true story. It happened in the Ukraine. And I'm blessed to hear you all pray for your neighbors and hear you pray for the Ukrainians and the people that you meet each day. And so I know that I'm preaching to the choir a lot tonight. I just want to encourage you to press on. What a legacy for a father to bestow on his children and the generations that follow after him. My father was such a man, warm, kind, loving, honest, just, noble, principled, and hardworking. He embodied all that we could ever conceive in a heavenly father and made our concept of God a very positive one. Now, being the eldest of six children, and although I was a girl, I was his right hand on our prosperous estate, on the Russian steep. Together we rode across the field, surveying the crops, organizing the duties of our hired labor. He was just and kind to our workers. And on these trips, he would share with me his sound advice. And now Katie, he spoke softly when he noticed my pride. Don't look at your face and your outward appearance. Make sure that your heart is right with God. When we sold our grain in the fall, Father deliberately put just a little more into the sack than was necessary. No one would accuse him of dishonesty. Too much rather than too little, he said. And sometimes in the spring, the poor of the village would come out to our back door to buy food when their winter supply was exhausted. And he always gave them much more than they paid for. His attitude was one of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. He was always willing to share. 
And although father had less material wealth to contribute to the marriage than my mother, he had an education and a keen intelligence. He had his millwright papers at an early age and seemed to win the respect of the Mennonite leaders when he was still a young man. Now this was no easy task as a person had to prove himself in these small, close-knit communities. Often, Father encouraged me to memorize scripture and reviewed the verses with me. A day will come when we won't have the written word, he said gently, but I noticed a pensiveness on his face, and I could not imagine such a day. Life would surely go on like this forever. I would undoubtedly marry a landowner's son. Our children and our children's children would continue to flourish on the limitless rich soil of the Ukraine. In peace and joy, we would raise, be, uh, we would raise our children in our close Mennonite community with the church as its focal point. But suddenly, the tables turned. Father's ideals uh, went against the new and accepted order. There was no God. There was no ownership. It was every man for himself in an atmosphere of mistrust and brutality. One morning, the dreaded knock came. Our whole family was rudely bundled into a wagon. My parents hardly had time to pack a few bedrolls, cookware, and a little food. And at the command of the Russian officer, the horses pulled away from our ancestral home. And his impassive face embodied all that we now feared in Soviet Russia. We looked back at our impressive estate, rooms full of fine oak furniture, barns full of pedigreed horses and fat cattle. The orchard was drooping with sweet fruit, and we never saw it again. Thirteen families from our area were similarly disposed by mounted guards with long sabers, and we were herded into freight cars which eventually reached Siberia. Our exile was a reality. The written word was indeed a thing of the past. We were set to work without food or shelter, felling trees and cutting logs for export. We were at the bottom of the criminal ladder. Huge quotas are hard to fill on an empty stomach. Somehow we found the ingredients for soup, Nettles, mushrooms, tender shoots, bark, and small animals. I watched Father change from a robust and ruddy-faced man to a bedraggled skeleton, and he was not quite 40. But his faith in God was unwavering. Finally, hope of a better life on earth died. We will perish here, he said. Katie, you and Maria are still young and stronger. We were 19 and 18. Perhaps you can escape and somehow reach our relatives in the South. And he reviewed directions and addresses with me until I had committed them to memory. And we prepared for flight. We were very weak physically, but my parents gave us what little food there was and made us ready. We prayed together one last time. And my father gave each of us a blessing, much like the fathers of the Old Testament. Tenderly, he placed his hands on our heads. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. 
The Lord be gracious unto thee. The Lord make his countenance to shine upon thee and give thee peace. And we all went out together and embraced for one last time. He was torn between seeing us starve in the wilderness and seeing us leave at the mercy of a Siberian winter and a Russia he could no longer understand. Father was weak as he walked along beside us with the aid of a tree branch to see us off. And as we walked out into the night, each star seemed strange and ominous. We were deliberately breaking the law for the first time in our life, and we were like common criminals. Father could not continue after three kilometers, and we stopped to bid him one last goodbye. He took his leave of us. Now children, he said, with tears streaming down his cheeks, Remember that you have praying parents in the forest, and if we don't meet again, we will meet in heaven. My last sight of him I will never forget. He leaned on his cane, his body shaking with loud and terrible sobs as the tears flowed to the ground like water out of a pitcher. I had never seen him weep. Slowly we turned and began to walk. The stones would have cried out and the mountains covered us. His agony could still be heard as we walked further into the night and I never saw him again. Years later, I heard that he had taken to his rough bed after returning to our family at the slave labor camp. It did not take long for death to take him over. His spirit was broken. Eventually, I did make it to freedom, and I often missed my father profoundly, but somehow he lives on. The rich heritage of goodness and integrity has been passed down through the generations, and I see him in the patience and gentleness of my sons with his ch their children. And sometimes I get a glimpse of him when I observe the stability and calm of my grandchildren. And the baton of the Christian walk is passed on to yet another generation, and it gives me peace. Turn it over to you. My heart was certainly stirred, and especially with that last uh, story that was shared. I appreciate our young people here. Thank you all so much for your faithfulness, for your testimony, your energy. We love you very much. God bless you all. And remember what was shared tonight. Why don't we stand together and uh, we'll sing our uh, Father in Heaven song together for our closing song and dismissal.